The Bible reading this morning um, comes from Numbers, Numbers chapter 11, and we're reading uh, verses 1 to 17. So if you've got your Bibles there or your phone, if you want to turn to Numbers chapter 11. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of them on the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we have meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the Jews settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me if I have found favour in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me seventy of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting, that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Morning again. Um, you can see on the screen behind me that we're looking at chapter 12 through to, uh, chapter 10 rather, through to chapter 12, just those verses. So we're zooming in. It's a lot shorter than last week. Let's pray as we look at God's word. Lord God, we ask that as we look at your word now, um, we pray that you would continue to teach us to trust you and to obey you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whinging, whining, moaning, complaining, it makes you think of a particular nationality, doesn't it? The whinging ponds, they're everywhere. Anytime someone whinges and whines and complains and moans, that's what you call them, a whinging pom, and it's I know it's not very politically correct, but it's a very accurate stereotype. And if the Poms want to complain, they just reinforce it. It's beautiful, isn't it? As we read Numbers, though, we see that actually it's the Israelites, the nation of Israel, that are like whinging Poms. 
complaining at everything that happens around them. And to be honest, as we read it, we need to look hard at ourselves too because there's many, many ways in which we do the same. So forget the poems. Think about you. Think about us. Think about our attitude. How do you react when things don't go your way? How do you react when things just aren't working out, when you can't see any way of controlling a situation? How loudly do you complain? And at what point do you start questioning God in a way which, well, it's not really appropriate? What do you do when things go wrong? Do you stop trusting God? Do you start complaining at God for the way he's allowing things to play out? They're the kind of questions to ponder as we look at Numbers 10 through to 12, as we see God's people, the nation of Israel, be tested, as we see their trust in God, their mighty saviour, wavering, and as we see them complain and grumble and moan against God, what you see happen is God judges them for that. But you also see God be amazingly merciful and patient with them. But what do you do when things are tough? Do you stop trusting God? That's the question to be, to be thinking about. Last week, we set the scene uh, for our time in Numbers by looking across the first 10 chapters. And I may not have made it clear enough last week, but when you look at each end of last week's passage, there's those time references, bookmarking it, showing you that this all fits together. It's 20 days of preparation before the march begins, the march of the people of Israel to the land that God's giving them. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, you see the march begin. So 10 verse 11, on the 20th day of the second month, the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law and the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from that place. It's underlining the fact that here God is leading his people. The cloud lifts, the people move. The cloud settles, they settle. It's God leading his people, this army of people on this march to the land. And as you would expect, after all the preparations you read through, they were so orderly, like the way they camped, the way they camp around the tabernacle, God in the middle of them, everything was so ordered, everything outlined. You'll see that shown in the way that they begin this orderly march. So in 10 verse 14, the divisions of the camp of Judah, they go first under their standard. And it rolls on, they come out in tribes or in groups, in clans. 10 verse 17, then the tabernacle's taken out, and you've got the Gershonites and the Merorites who carry it, they set out. So... When you saw in the first 10 chapters how the, the Levites camp around the tabernacle, each with their responsibility for different parts of it, here they are doing their jobs, packing up the tabernacle, moving it on, and you see it continues to go on. Verse 18, uh, the divisions of the camp of Reuben, of Reuben went next under their standard. On it goes all the way down to 10, verse 28. This was the order of march for the Israelite divisions as they set out. At this point in Numbers, what you see is an obedient people, following God's instructions, allowing God to lead them. Something else I probably didn't underline enough last week was the first four chapters, each finished by underlining that the people did exactly what God told them to. There's an emphasis on their obedience and an emphasis on the fact that God is leading his obedient people. And don't miss the significance of 10 verse 12, the last bit of the verse there. They actually make it to their destination. So verse 12 goes, Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and travelled from that place to place, sorry, from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They make it to Paran. Look at the other end of today's passage, the other bookend. Look ahead in 12 verse 16. 12 verse 16, After that the people left 
Hazaroth and camped in the desert of Paran. 10 verse 12 says they made it to Paran. They camped there. 13 verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. And we'll get to chapter 13 in two weeks' time. But the point is, they make it to the border of the land of Canaan. And at this point, back in chapter 10, at the beginning of their journey, at the beginning of their march, they're optimistic. At least Moses is. If you look at what Moses says in 10 verse 20 to his father-in-law, or if you've got the footnote, brother-in-law, I'll leave you to work that out. Second half of verse 20. We are setting out for the place about which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us. We'll treat you well. For the Lord has promised good things to Israel. What you get is this picture of an ordered army of people who are obediently following God and they're optimistic, looking forward to everything God's promised. But as you get into chapters 11 and 12, you see their focus begin to wander. Um, Years ago, when the kids were really little, we'd make regular trips down south and it was one morning, we got up at 3.30 in the morning. Lyndon and I carefully carried the kids into the car. They were little then, we could carry them. Carried them into the car from their beds, working as quietly as we could. Pillows around them and stuff, made sure they were settled, seatbelts on. We crept out of the driveway in our jester. There's nothing on the road, dead quiet. Made it to the freeway and then started marking off the 673 kilometres to Taree. All you could hear was you know, the road, the tyres on the road, sleeping noises in the back, no other sound. We made it to the Tugan traffic lights on the Gold Coast, you know, a long way into that 673 kilometres, and one of the kids calls out from the back seat, you know, don't you? Are we there yet? It's going to be a long day, especially when you got up that early, that time of day. And as a parent, you know that's not the last question. There's going to be more. Can we stop? I need the toilet. The whinging and the complaining starts. I'm busting. You said when we woke up we'd be... The people of Israel, well, they're a lot like that, aren't they? They made a fantastic start. The obedient, optimistic people of Israel, they head out on their journey, but they soon start complaining and whining and whinging. And in the passage we're looking at today, you've got three examples of their complaints. And as you consider them, there's, I reckon, three lessons for us to learn. The first complaint, it's there in 11 verse 1. Now, the people people complained about their hardships. It's very broad. It's very general, very English. But it sets the pattern for what follows. So 11 verse 1, the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And And when he heard them, his anger was aroused Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. And so the place was called Taborah because fire from the Lord had burned among them. As you look on the screen, you'll see that's the sequence of this narrative, this complaint sequence. You're going to see it again and again and again and again. The people complain, God hears, God is angry, God punishes. So when they're punished, the people cry out to Moses. Moses prays, and God puts an end to the punishment, and on they go. We'll see the same pattern repeated again with slight variation each time. 
But look back over 11 verses 1 to 3 for the, for the first complaint. What, you know, what's the lesson they should have learned? What's the lesson we should learn? After everything God has done for them, they're showing a complete lack of gratitude, aren't they? A lack of trust. And so God punishes them. And so maybe the first lesson is, well, just don't complain against God. Don't complain against our good God. Just keep trusting him. Um, do you ever feel like complaining against our powerful God? When you've had a rough week? When your parents don't understand you? When your kids don't understand you? When tragedy hits? When you don't get what you want? When you know what you should do, but you don't want to do it? We moan, we whinge, we ask why in a kind of angry way. But look at Numbers 11, verses 1 to 3. Let it sink in. God doesn't want us complaining. He wants us to trust him, particularly after everything he's done for us, the way he's looked after us. We need to keep trusting him. The second, um, well, that's the first lesson learned. Then you come to the second complaint in 11 verse 4. So 11 verse 4 goes, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. You just think about, this is, if you go back at the count that was done, there's more than 600,000 600, fighting men and all their families. This massive great group of people in the desert and God is miraculously providing food for them to eat. Yeah, it's like coriander, it's all the same, but these people, they're whinging about the menu. It's just, yeah. But this time, the variation in that complaint sequence, the variation this time is Moses joins in. So if you look down in 10 verse 11, he's affected by all this. 10 verse 11, Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance of their tents, and the Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. And as you read on, there's two things he's worried about. One is, how on earth is he going to lead this people? And secondly, how is he going to provide for them? So verse 11, he asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? You know, why have you got me in this situation, God? What are you doing to me? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? How am I going to lead them? And verse 12, did I conceive of these people? Did I give birth to them? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms? And you know, How am I going to look after this lot? And he complains at God. How am I going to lend the your people, God? And then the second complaint that's down there in verse 13, how am I going to provide for them? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. And here's Moses joining in, accusing God of abandoning him. If you look at verse 14, 11 verse 14, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how they're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me right now. I, if I've found favour in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. This second lesson we learn is if you can, for a minute, put yourself in the shoes of Moses, you learn the lesson. Moses, his trust in God appears to be shattered and he needs to learn to trust God again. And God in his mercy, he will provide for both Moses' concerns. As you keep reading, God provides meat. It just drops out of the sky, no work involved. But he also gives Moses help in leading the people. So verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who you know, 
who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people, make them come to the tent of meeting, that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there. I will take some of the power of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. And there's two elders that don't make it there. He even looks after them too. The point is, God in his patience, in his mercy, in his kindness, he provides. He gives Moses what he's asking for. And God cares. He gives them food to eat, meat in the desert. So God teaches Moses to trust and not doubt. And I reckon that's another lesson that we can learn as well and learn again and again and again. I mean, how often do we think that, you know, God's ways are not best? How often do we think that doing it my way, our way, will be better? We know that our hope is in heaven. We know that everything we live for is in heaven, tied up with Jesus, and yet we put so much effort and so much trust into things on this earth. That's not the way it's meant to be. We know that serving God and having him at the centre of our life, like Israel was meant to learn, serving God and having Jesus at the centre of everything is the most important thing, and yet we keep putting our husband first or our wife first or our kids first. We keep betraying a lack of trust in God. But look at this incident again. Consider the gracious way that God deals with Moses. In his kindness, he responds to Moses' concerns, teaches Moses to just keep trusting and keep obeying. As Christians, we have even more reason to keep trusting God because we've got a more complete perspective on the plan that God is working to. Moses can only see a little way ahead, but we look back and we see the whole picture. Consider um, Hebrews 11. So this is one of those passages where the writer of the Hebrews, he pulls out the people from the Old Testament and shows how they trusted in what they saw, not really fully understanding that they were actually trusting in Jesus, the full big picture. So if you look at 11 verse 8, for example, by faith Abraham, when called to go to the place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Um, The writer claims they acted on the little that they knew and they trusted and they obeyed. They were in fact living consistently with how we live, knowing the completed picture. So he jumped down to verse 9, by faith he made his home, Abraham made his home in a promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. He obediently trusted, not fully understanding, he was looking forward to something much bigger. And then the twist comes in verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. As Christians, we have so much more reason to trust in God. We, we look forward to heaven. As we read through Numbers, we're thinking about this march to heaven, and we look back at the cross, at the finished work of Jesus, fully understanding how it all fits together. We've got no reason not to trust God. So take care that we don't display a lack of trust in God. Um, the first complaint is 11 verses 1 to 3, just this general learn not to complain. Then from verses 4 and following, um, I think we're being taught through Moses to trust. 
And the third complaint narrative teaches us to respect God's mediator. So if you come down to chapter 12, verse 1, this time it's Aaron and Miriam. Probably more Miriam, I think. This time they're complaining against their leader, the leader that God has appointed, the mediator God has appointed. So 12, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron began to take to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Hear the complaint? We're not told so much about the Cushite wife and why that matters or not. What's brought to our attention, the thing that God picks up on, is the fact that Aaron and Miriam challenge Moses' leadership. They moan and whinge and complain about the leader God has pointed, appointed over them. It's like saying they want God to speak directly to them. Cut out Moses. We don't need him. Miriam and Aaron complain and God hears. So verse 4, at once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out and then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Are you hearing it? They complain about the mediator that God has chosen, the leader that God has appointed. And the complaint sequence continues. God hears the complaint, shows that he's heard it. He gets angry, verse 9. The anger of the Lord burned against them and he left them. And then God punishes, verse 10. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became white as, as snow. And then what do the people do? Well, they cry out to Moses. This time it's Aaron who does that. Um, 12, second half of verse 10. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. And so what does Moses do? He prays, verse 13. So Moses cried out to the Lord, please, God, heal her. And then God responds, the punishment ends, verse 14. The Lord replied to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days, and after that, she'll be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on till she was brought back. This repeated pattern of complaining will continue through numbers. But this time, I think the lesson to learn is to respect God's appointed mediator, allow God to speak in the means that he has appointed and the way he has planned. And for us, I think the lesson is the same, except that we, we need to kind of step it up a few gears because Jesus is so much greater than Moses and he is our mediator. So again, come to Hebrews. It's a handy little commentary in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 3 from verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all the house of God, in all God's house. And verse three, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses. And yet, people keep doing the Miriam. 
They keep doing the Aaron. They keep complaining about the way that God has used to speak to us. They do things like demanding that God speak to them directly, that God answer their signs, the tests they put in front of God. But the lesson to learn is to trust the means that God has provided. And in our case, trust the finished work of Jesus. Trust God's final word in Jesus. What more does he need to say? Trust and obey. Listen to Jesus. So in Numbers 10 to 12, we see God's people, they're supposed to be obediently marching to the land God has in store for them, but they start calling out from the backseat, are we there yet? And they start whinging, they start complaining and moaning and groaning. And their restlessness overflows in a kind of contempt or lack of gratitude to God. Let's not forget that they do make it to the border of the land of Canaan. Despite their attitude, despite their sinfulness, God carries them through. He brings them there. On this journey, there's lessons they needed to learn. And as we look back, there's lessons for us to learn. As we read numbers with heaven in mind, as we read numbers with the the idea that God is leading us, as we follow Jesus, leading us to heaven, then there's lessons we can learn too. They're the same lessons, aren't they? The first one is don't complain against God. The second one is to keep trusting in God. And the third one is to keep respecting God's appointed mediator. I know there's more that we'll see in numbers, but just let those ones settle down and think them through. They're lessons we need to learn again and again and again. And as you're thinking about all that, have a look at some words from 1 Peter to put the kind of the New Testament perspective on this. And because we've been in 1 Peter in growth, in 2 Peter in, in growth group, it kind of gives a bit of context. I'll pick it up from verse, verse 3, chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Gives you a perspective on the hard times, doesn't it? God's testing us, keeping us trusting in him, teaching us to trust in him and not complain when things are a little bit difficult. Let's pray that in God's mercy we would learn that lesson. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for the privileged position that you've put us in. Thank you that we're able to look back on the cross of Christ and appreciate the forgiveness that you've won for us. Lord, thank you that we can look forward to the promise of eternity with you. Please work in us, we pray. Keep us trusting in you. And please keep us obeying, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.